Good morning, my name is Zach Douglas. I'm the Student Ministries Director here at Country Oaks, and it's my pleasure to preach to you this morning. Uh, this morning we'll be in Hosea chapter 5 and 6. So if you could please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hosea chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim, is, or sorry, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away, and no one shall rescue. I will return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it guides us and it shapes us. I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, and that you would show us who you are and, and deepen our knowledge of you and our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage in Hosea, Hosea is speaking about our devotion to God, and, and we are devoted to many things in our lives. We're devoted to our jobs, our family, our friends. We're devoted to our church, our community, and our hobbies. An easy illustration for this would be your devotion, if you're, if you're a fan of sports, to a sports team. It requires your emotion, your knowledge, your loyalty, uh, you know the players, the history of the team, you're faithful year to year, and uh, for the most part, your emotional health is determined by whether or not they win or lose. Uh, pray for me, I'm a Raiders fan. Uh, or, or if you aren't into sports, maybe your favorite band, it's kind of the same thing, you know the history of the band, you know songs, you know the band members, um, or your friends and family. We know who they are, we know what they love, we know how they enjoy spending time, we know what we would want to get them for Christmas, that's coming up, uh, we know what we want to get them for their birthdays, we know what they value, what makes them tick, and really devotion can be boiled down to love, knowledge, and faithfulness. This, what, this is what Hosea is getting at here in this passage, that God's people know what it takes to be devoted to him. And yet, God's people, Israel, give their love, their faithfulness, and they have knowledge of other things, a deep, intimate knowledge of other things. When we get to this passage in Hosea, Hosea uh, is centuries after the law has been given, generations after David was made king. The last time we were in narrative in Exodus, we saw Israel pleading with Moses, saying, if God speaks to us again, we will die. Please speak to us, mediate on our behalf. And then from really that point on, 
Israel is stuck in this downward spiral. We see it starting with the golden calf, and it continues from there. And then we get the judges, and that's even worse. And then, every, then, then Israel asks for a king, demands a king, and Saul is a disappointment. Then we have David, and that's really where, where Israel peaks is with David. But then he has his sin with Bathsheba, and it's just from there, the kings start to look more like, like the judges in Israel, and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And at this point... Israel is no longer recognizable from the other nations. They aren't just people that have been set apart. Sure, they might pay lip service to God, but they worship the same gods as other nations. They participate in the same things as other, other nations. And in the book of Hosea, like the other prophets, God is calling for Israel to return to him. He's calling for them to give him their devotion. And in the passage today, what we see is God tells Israel that really those who are devoted to him, those who are his people, they know that their salvation comes from God. They know rightly to return and repent, and they know what God desires. So let's look at verse 13. It says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he was not able to cure you, or heal your wound. Like I said earlier, Israel is at the point where they're being punished by God for their sins. They have turned to, from God to Baals, these false pagan gods who they were attributing all of their success to. Uh, they had turned, when they, when they were in the midst of famine and drought because of their sin, they turned to the king of Assyria, pleading with him for help. They were ignoring the ways of God. Their leaders were ignoring the law and the prophets. And they may be saying with their mouth that they worship Yahweh, but with their actions and with their hearts, they were saying that there is no God. They were looking for quick fixes to save them from what they didn't realize was God's wrath. And on the, on the surface level, this totally makes sense. You could, you could argue, you could see where Israel could convince themselves that, okay, God's placed all of these nations around us, so we must be able to go to them for for salvation, for provision, and he's, he's made them successful so that we could take from them, right? But Israel doesn't realize that they, were, they had brought upon themselves God's wrath. As part of the covenant, God says that if you do this, this, and this, then I will bless you. If you adhere to the law, if you, if you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I will bless you. You will be successful in battle. You are, your borders will be expanded, your, your crops will produce. But if you don't, if you forsake my law and my commandments, then I will bring about famine, drought, disease, and you will be drawn out of the land. You will be pulled out of the land that I have given you. And that's what they were facing. They were facing the curses that God had laid out if they didn't obey the law. Unless they would repent. God always hears the prayers of someone who is truly repentant, and yet Israel is not. So they continue to face famine and drought and suffering, and they go to the king of Assyria and beg for him to save them. But in verse 14, what we see is God's wrath against them. It says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I Even I will tear and go away. 
I will carry off and no one shall rescue. He's telling them that Assyria cannot save you. Babylon cannot save you because God is the one that's bringing about wrath. This isn't David against Goliath where where God is on David's side. Instead, it is Israel against God. They're facing Assyria as an instrument of God's wrath. And yet they don't even know it. This, this passage in verse, or this verse, verse 14, where God says he's like a young lion amongst sheep, is really the epitome of what C.S. Lewis descri- how C.S. Lewis describes God in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He is, he is not safe, but he is good. If you oppose him, then you will face his wrath. And it will be like a lion among sheep. No one shall rescue Israel had turned against God and and really played the role of Hosea's wife in the narrative of of Hosea perfectly. God commanded Hosea to marry this prostitute who was going to be unfaithful to him as a symbol for what God's relationship with Israel was like. He was their treasured possession, their people, and yet they turned from him constantly. They turned to other gods, to other lovers. They looked at other people as, as their providers, and they forsake God. God is playing the righteous role of the scorned husband, and Israel is is playing the role of a concubine for a pagan nation rather than being God's treasured possession. They were trusting in what God had explicitly told them not to trust in. They were doing everything that God, God had told them not to do, and they forgot who God was. They forgot what he wanted from them and the people that he had called them to be. That's what God accuses of them, them of in Hosea 4, 1 to 3. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. And he continues on in verse 6 and says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. God is saying that they are destroyed because they disobeyed him. They are crushed because they deliberately disobeyed God and they rejected him. And like a lion among sheep, he will tear them apart and draw them or pull them into exile. Jim Hamilton describes this. He says, When he drives them from the land, when God drives Israel from the land, they will enter the realm of the dead. They will die as a nation. And that's accurate. For for a nation, what happened to Israel was death. They were pulled from their land, they were no longer independent, and they were serving another nation. They were in exile away from the land of their fathers. And God's punishment will be so severe that no one can save them. There's no hope for restoration by their own means. And even if they attempt to, 
God says in Hosea 2 that he will block every single attempt. Now, when they try to save themselves, their vineyards will still lay to waste. That they will have no food, that there will continue to be a famine. And this will leave Israel at the point where they can only be saved by God. They will only, they can really only turn to God and remember where their help comes from. Remember who redeemed them in the past and provided for them. This really serves as a warning to us that we must remember where our help comes from. We cannot forget that God is our redeemer and our provider. Amidst all this talk of devotion in, it, in Hosea, we must remember that God is who he is, that he has provided for us, that he is our redeemer, because this is a key aspect of who God is. He redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He provided for them their entire history, going back to their, the father of their nation, Abraham. Even going all the way back to Adam, that in the midst of sin, God still provided for humanity. He still showed mercy. That God, for them at this time and for us now, will provide redemption from sin. That God is who he says he is. He's not a fickle God, but he is a faithful one. And when we forget these truths about God, we are bound to end up like Israel, far from God, deep into idolatry. And it may not be paganism, we may not be worshiping Baal, but it's just the same. We place our hope for, in other things. We place our hope for joy in our jobs, in our families, our hobbies, our kids' hobbies, or more often than not, we place our hope in ourselves, in our own abilities. These things take up our thoughts. We, what we think we find joy and we become obsessed with, we try to learn everything we could possibly learn about them, and yet every single time, they will disappoint us. Every single time, they will pale in comparison to God. They will serve us just about as well as the Baals served their prophets when they were going up against Elijah and Yahweh. Hosea's call is a call to recognize God as the great provider, as the one who's given us everything we could possibly desire, as the one who has done wonderful works in our lives, even in times of hardship and struggle, even in times when we don't really see what God is doing in our lives, and especially in times of joy and happiness. We must remember that God is who he says he is and praise him for it. So how do we do this well? How do we, how do we worship God for who he is? Well, we must regularly recount or regularly bring to mind what God has done for us in our prayers, through a gratitude journal, in talking with fellow believers, in sharing the gospel with unbelievers. We must remember and bring to mind what God has done for us. Because those memories, those reminders, will get us through the times of trial and suffering. Another great way is to ask our friends what God is doing in their lives. Ask them what a praiseworthy, uh, or how God has answered their prayers recently. Call to mind the things that God has done for us. Otherwise, we're in danger of ending up just like Israel and Hosea that one day we're devoted to God and then we start to drift 
away from him. We start to drift towards other things, and we start to drift away from God. And we end up far from him, regardless of what our church attendance, regardless of what our, what our lips speak and our hands do. We can still be far from God. And as the great provider and redeemer, God also requires something from us. He doesn't just just give us the things that we want and then just say, okay, live, go, go ahead and live however you want. He requires us to be devoted to him. Because in all honesty, that's what's best for us in our lives. As our great provider and redeemer, God requires us to be fully devoted to him and to no one else. In verse 15, God continues, he says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God says that that he will tear Israel apart. He will push them into exile, tear them away from the land, and then he will wait for them to return to him. That once they realize their guilt, once they recognize what has happened to them and why it happened and repent and turn to God, then he will return to them. This is what God wants. God wants us to earnestly seek him, to pursue him above all else, to turn from our sin, even in the midst of of distress, and repent of it, trusting that he will return to us. And it's this distress that helps them, helps Israel to see the gravity of their sin, to see what Israel is like without God. Because remember, God didn't choose Israel because they were special, because they were this powerful nation. They were slaves. He chose them for his glory. And when, when they are devoted to him, it is what is best for them. God's judgment will bring about Israel's repentance. It is God's judgment that will bring about everything that they need to do in order to be God's people, to be God's treasured possession. First, they must realize their guilt, and then they must earnestly seek him. And Hosea calls them to this. In verse 1, we see, starting in verse 1, we see two pleas from Hosea to the people of Israel. And the first one is a call to repentance. He says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Hosea is saying, come, hear what God is saying to us. Turn from your sin and turn back to God, and he will heal us. Notice that he says, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has punished us so that he can heal us when we realize our guilt. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. This is, this is a lot like Lot speaking to his sons-in-law when God is about to destroy Sodom. Lot says, flee from Sodom. God's going to destroy it and crush it. And how do they respond? They just laugh at him. And that's, that's really what happens to the, to the prophets in Israel. They're saying, judgment is coming. There's impending doom, and God is going to crush us unless you repent. And yet they just rejected their message. Israel did not turn from what they were doing and instead persecuted God's prophets. They were devoted to other things, and because of that, God is going to be like a lion among sheep. 
He will do what he had promised them he would do. In Deuteronomy 28, when, when God brings about all of the blessings and then they turn from him, he will punish them. Hosea 6.1 is showing Israel that God is their only way out. God is their only way of salvation. And this really shows God's purpose in the judgment, to show them their folly and draw them to repentance. That only after repentance, God will heal and he will bind. And that's why God punished Israel to the degree that he did. That's why he pulled them out of Israel and into exile, because it is only through judgment that Israel will find their salvation. It's only through the, the conviction of their sin that they will return back to God. One of my professors in seminary has a book that really covers the whole of the Bible, and, it's, and he says that the tagline of the Bible could really be summed up as God's glory in salvation through judgment. And so we see that in the history of Israel, that, that through their judgment, God saves them, and he is glorified. But Israel will only see their need for God when God shows them what Israel is like without God that they really are this weak slave nation, that they've given themselves over to their sin and over to other nations. And because of that, they need God. But he doesn't just heal Israel. God goes a step further. Israel as a nation was dead. They were crushed under the power of the Assyrians and Babylonians as tools of God's judgment. Their cities were destroyed. The people were, people were removed. But eventually, God brings them back. There's a repentant remnant that returns to God. We see this in Ezra and Nehemiah, that that they rebuild the temple, not to the same glory. They rebuild the walls, but they're still not really their own nation. But God takes it a step further. He doesn't just say he'll restore Israel as a nation. He goes even deeper. In verse 2, he says, After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Now, I'm sure we see the symbolism there, but first let's look at what it, what it means for Israel in this moment. In this moment, two days is a metaphor for a short period of time. That after, after a brief time, God will bring them back. After only 70 years, a relatively short period of exile, they will return to the land. Seventy years was long enough that the people eventually started to assimilate to, to life under Babylonian rule, under Assyrian rule. They started to forget what it was like to be their own nation. Some of the Israelites decided to just stay in Babylon. Israel as a nation was a far-off memory, but not forgotten. Some of the older generations of Israel could tell them what it was like but it wasn't a, a clear experience for the returning remnant. And it never, Israel really never was restored to their former glory. But, it, but on, um, in verse 2 it says, On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. It's pointing forward to a greater salvation, a greater return from exile, a greater redemption. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, it says, And when, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, 
and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord has driven you, when you remember everything I told you before you were in exile, and verse 2, and return to the Lord your God, and you and your children, and obey the voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord, will, your God, will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, the, of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, and you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. So they'll be restored to the land but they, but they will, he takes it a step further. They will be restored as a people, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He's promising them redemption from their sins, that the, the fleshly parts of their hearts will be cut off and they will be fully devoted to God. He's telling them that God is not just looking for their, for their works, but he's looking for their hearts. He doesn't just want their adherence to the law, but he wants them to be fully devoted to him. That one day he will send a Messiah that will save them from their sins. And that's what these verses are pointing us to, that, that Jesus died and three days later he was raised again and, and it's so that we may live with God so that we can be restored and saved from our sins, that we may be given hearts that are faithful and steadfast in love. This promise isn't just about Israel restoring, being restored as a nation, that they could be prosperous in this life, but it's so that they could, they could live with God, that they could be God's treasured possession forever. That this, these, this verse is really pointing us further past the restoration of Israel to restoration that we find in Christ. And this is a promise that we can rest in. That when we turn or return to God, when we confess our sins, when we ask for forgiveness and turn from our sins, that God will restore us and give us eternal life and a heart that is devoted to him. A new heart and a new spirit that follows Jesus as both Lord and Savior. That our faith isn't one that's just a get-out-of-hell-free card or fire insurance, as some people say. But it's, it's a faith that is fully devoted to Christ and follows his commands willingly and devotedly. This is God's promise to do for Israel what he's done now for us in Christ, giving us a new heart that can love him fully. So that's the first plea that Israel would return to God so that he could heal them and bring about this restoration. And then verse 3, it's a plea to know God. It says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is is as sure as the dawn, and he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water on the earth. He's saying, let us know God intimately, not just kind of the knowledge you could get from an encyclopedia, but a deep, intimate knowledge that you get from a relationship. He's urging his people to press on and pursue knowing God because lack of knowledge of God was a key failure for Israel. 
If they don't know God, then they don't know what he wants and they just drift farther and farther away from him. So what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know the Lord? What is this knowledge that, is, that Hosea is talking about? Knowing God, as, as Hosea talks about it, is a relational, deep knowledge of who God is. It's not just a knowledge that he exists that you could get, as Romans 1 says, from looking out at nature, but it's a knowledge that's revealed in the special revelation, in, in Scripture, in God's Word, what he has revealed to us about him. It's a knowledge that moves beyond general, general revelation and into special revelation. It's the knowledge that you get from learning the principles of the law, from learning how God has called us to be a holy people. In his institutes, John Calvin calls this a piety, or he describes it as a pure and true zeal, which loves God altogether as Father and reveals, reveres him truly as Lord embraces his justice, and dreads to offend him more than to die. This knowledge of God could also be described as a fear of the Lord, that you know who he is and what he requires and what happens when we sin and what happens to us as a sinful people. It involves trust and reverence. And this knowledge of God is worth pursuing. John Frame says that there is nothing more important than knowing the Lord. There is nothing more important than knowing the Lord. This knowledge is important because of how it guides us and shapes us. If we know who God is, it leads us first to salvation and then to sanctification, to first being saved and then to becoming more like Christ. So first, knowledge of God leads to salvation. What we see throughout the Bible is anytime someone, a human, a sinful human, comes face to face with God, they are terrified to the point of death. We see that in Exodus 20, when Israel pleads with Moses to be their mediator. We see that in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, when he's having a vision. We see this with John the Apostle, when he falls down as if he was dead in Revelation 1. We see this with Job after he's defended himself vehemently against his friends for 30 chapters, and he's speechless before God. All of these men had a backbone. All of these men went before other people who were going to persecute them, execute them, reject them, and proclaimed God's truth. And yet when they were in the presence of God, they crumbled. Because he is so holy, and we are not. Calvin talks about this in his Institutes. He says, As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. What in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. Basically saying that, that when we're looking at just life as it is, when we're, when we're living as if there is no God, when we don't remind ourselves of who God is, when we don't have a knowledge of God, we might think that we are good enough to get into heaven. That the things we do are good enough to earn us a spot. That we are moral and righteous and wise. But then when we look at God, when we remember who he is, when we're reminded of the truth of God, when we have a knowledge of him, we realize it's all worthless. That it's all sinfully stained 
and we need Christ. Our sin always comes from a lack of of knowing who God is or forgetting who he is. We're like the fool in Psalm 14.1. We may be acting a certain way that is in line with how Christians should act, but in our hearts we say there is no God. The knowledge of God is, a, is one of the greatest deterrents for sin in our lives. It, it leads us to salvation and then leads us deeper into sanctification. And we can grow in our knowledge of God through prayer, through reading his word, and through being with his people. One pastor was asked, what's more important, um, reading God's word or praying? And the pastor's response was, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? Both are essential to knowing who God is and to being in relationship with him. We can't just be a people that reads his word. We must be a people that prays to him, that seeks fellowship and communion, communion with him. And another great way to know God deeper is by being with his people, asking each other, what is God doing in your life? Share your testimony with me. How did God save you? The more we know about God, the further we get deeper into relationship with him and the further we go away from sin. Knowing God also leads us to knowing what he desires, knowing what he requires of us, in Hosea 6.4, it shifts back to God speaking, and, and he is ple- he's not pleading, he's expressing his frustration with Israel. Verse 4, it says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. God sounds like a frustrated father with a son who just won't obey him. What am I supposed to do with you, Israel? You're a stiff-necked people who constantly turn from me. There are fickle people perfectly symbolized in the marriage between Hosea and Gomer, and I'm sure Hosea said the same thing about his wife. God, what am I supposed to do with her? She keeps turning to other men. I've provided all of these things, and yet she turns away from me. And Israel does the same thing with God, and we do the same thing with God. We attribute our blessings, our, our provision to someone else, whether to ourselves or, or to uh, really just to ourselves in our day and age. Israel was turning to these other gods that they made by their hands, and we turn to ourselves and turn away from God. So God expresses his frustration and continues and says, therefore, because of their, their lack of love, therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. Israel's love was so momentary that he described it as the morning dew or a morning cloud. That it was there, and then in the heat of the day, it disappeared. And that word love, when he says, your love is like the, um, I lost my spot. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. That word love is the same for steadfast love. He's saying your steadfast love is not steadfast. And because of that, I have hewn you by my prophets. I've slain you by the words of my mouth. I've 
cut you open and exposed your sin, my judgment goes forth as the light. You can see your sin clearly now, Israel, and yet you continue to reject me. Verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He requires a steadfast love, not a temporary one. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That he's not saying, he's not saying that he doesn't want the law. That, it, that, I mean, he's the one that instituted it. He's the one that gave the law, but he's saying that, that it's not, that's not enough. Just a surface level obedience is not enough. He, if, if it doesn't have a steadfast love as the foundation for it, as all the, all that their works come out of is the steadfast love. If that's not there, then it's a fickle love. It is one that just goes away as soon as the sun comes out. As soon as trials come, it turns from God. And that's what we see in the history of Israel, that their love quickly turns from him. Their obedience isn't primary if they don't have love and faithfulness to God. And it's also true for us. You could modernize this a little bit and say God wants steadfast love and not church attendance, that he wants knowledge of God rather than spiritual disciplines. That if we're just doing the Christian things because that's what Christians do, but there's no real love for God, then it's meaningless. It'll crumble on judgment day. It's sand. It's a house built upon sand. If there is no love for God, then our works are worthless. He's saying that he wants our hearts. He wants our devotion and our faithfulness, not our ritualism and religion. He wants a love for him that produces works, that produces obedience. If our steadfast love and faithfulness doesn't produce these good works, then we, then we have the wrong motivation. James says so in in James two fourteen to 18 What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This passage in Hosea and this passage in James are two sides of the same coin. That if, if we only have works but no faith, then our faith is in something else. If there's no steadfast love and no faithfulness, then our faith is in ourselves, not in God. Our devotion is to ourselves, not to God. But on the other side, if we have faith, if we say we have faith, but no works, no evidence of faith, then our faith is dead. It's not really there. It's not a true faith. We're as faithful as Israel during the time of the kings. Having a steadfast love for God and an intimate knowledge of him is the only solid foundation for works. It's the only way our works actually matter. As God's people, we must know what he truly desires and what it means to be his treasured possession. 
We must be wholly devoted to him. True devotion to God requires that we lower our devotion to everything else. That we lower our devotion to our work, to our family, to our favorite hobbies, to our kids' favorite hobbies, their sports, their activities, whatever it is. And you might look at me and say, Zach, you're a 28-year-old with one kid who's 11 months old and his favorite hobby is peekaboo. And it's true. I don't know how hard it is to balance schedules and balance all of these things and still make it to church on time or, or still fit in family worship or still fit in my own personal devotion time. I don't get that yet. But scripture is clear. And what I've seen as, as, as the youth pastor here at Country Oaks is that the devotion that the parents have, the kids will quickly and willingly follow. Statistics show across America that, that those, that uh, students will follow the devotion of their parents, not some 90% of it. These statistics for Gen Z especially, the current teenage, junior high, high school, early college, sh- it's showing that they're m- even more likely than my generation was millennials to leave the faith that they're quicker to leave their childhood religions. And I know that there's theological implications of salvation, of of God-giving faith and all of that. But if your kids don't see your devotion to God, how can they even think it's worth following? How can they be softened to the things of God? If you aren't devoted to God, then you can't expect your kids to be devoted to God. If you aren't making your faith the, the... preeminent thing in your life, then your kids won't either. And yes, church members without kids, either either your grandparents or you haven't had kids yet or you're not married, whatever it is, church members without kids, this thing applies to us too. When we do uh, child dedications, we're all standing and agreeing that we will come alongside these parents in raising up their kids in the things of God. And if they're not seeing that that the faith is worth following from everyone in their church, why would they possibly follow it? Why would they think that it's valuable? J.C. Ryle says that if it is worthwhile to be a Christian, it is worthwhile to be earnest about it. Christianity isn't just the, the group that you ascribe to or the team that you're a fan of. It is a wholehearted devotion to God. Is this earnestness something that we're showing the kids of this church? Is this earnestness something that we're showing each other? One of the biggest encouragements to me is when I see fellow believers who are wholeheartedly devoted to God, and that encourages me, me to be more devoted to him. It pushes me deeper into relationship with God. Jesus says that to follow him, you must hate your father and your mother. And it's not saying that you reject them and, and despise them, but he's saying that if, if you look at your devotion to Christ, it looks like you hate everything else. It looks like, like you hate your families or your parents or your job. But if we are fully devoted to God, we will love our families, our fellow church members even better. When we're fully devoted to God, everything else falls into place. Is that what our love looks like? Is it a love that encourages others to love God better? Is it a love that encourages your kids to be more devoted to God? 
do you see, do they see your devotion to who Jesus is? As God's people, we must be a people that know who he is and what he wants from us. We must be steadfast in our love for him, not just remembering him in the times of trial when he's a last resort, but remembering him in the times of joy and happiness. We must be faithful to him as he is faithful. We must have a deep knowledge of him, and we must be devoted to God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way that you guide us and shape us and expose our sin through your word. I pray that we would not take knowledge of you lightly, that we would be fully devoted to you and steadfast in our love. Encourage us, encourage us with the, the faith of other believers, with their devotion, and deepen our devotion to you. In Jesus' name, amen.